BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. Protests against police brutality have been reignited after the shooting of Jacob Blake, and the Trump campaign sees an opportunity. As counter-protests turn lethal and the president continues to stoke division, what's the political fallout of violence in American cities? How did it become a cudgel against Joe Biden and the Democrats and not an indictment of the man actually in charge? So, guys, this is our peaches and herb moment. We're reunited. And speaking for myself, it feels so good. I know. And for the last time. It's wonderful to be back with you guys, even if Frank is poised to abandon us. And I really missed you guys. You know, sure, I was sitting on a beach in Maine, you know, watching the time of the world go by, watching my children play. But really, I was thinking about arguing about politics the whole time. You were looking at your lovely little children and thinking of Michelle and me, of course. Of course. I'm, I'm like, which one is more a Frank and which one is more a Michelle? And my wife was like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? So let's get right into our topic this week because it is a big one. Almost two weeks ago in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake was shot at close range in the back by a white police officer in front of Blake's three sons. Video of the shooting spread fast, instantly rekindling protests against police brutality. Two days into the protests, a 17-year-old, reportedly a Trump supporter, shot protesters in Kenosha, killing two people. Then, in Portland, Oregon, a caravan of Trump supporters were met with counter-protesters, and amid the skirmishes that broke out, a member of the far-right group Patriot Prayer was shot and killed. Meanwhile, Trump eggs on this division with all the subtlety of a military parade. He tweets praise for his supporters, whom he calls patriots, and links the Black Lives Matter protest to violent anarchy and the city's failure to quell that unrest to the Democratic Party as a whole. So let's start with a question we've asked before on this show, and that is, can we blame Trump for this escalation of violence between Americans? I don't think there's any question that Trump has incited white vigilantism, white supremacy. He has been egging on kind of violent thuggery from his supporters since his campaign in 2015 and 2016. He has repeatedly lauded people who either threaten or take violent action against those he considers his enemies. He just recently praised Kyle Rittenhouse, who has been charged with murder after shooting two protesters in Kenosha. And something I would point out is that this is an argument, you know, that I've been making for years and years now. It's an argument that people like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the, you know, Anti-Defamation League has made. In my column this week, I talked to Elizabeth Newman, who was part of Trump's DHS until April, where she was a high-level counterterrorism official. And she also makes this argument. You know, she says that a huge problem that people working on counterterrorism in the United States have to deal with is the growing emboldening of white supremacy and 
you know, violent white nationalism and that Trump has both encouraged them, made them feel like they have his tacit encouragement and handicapped government efforts to combat it. So there's just no question at this point that Trump has emboldened the violent right. And then the other piece of that is that you're seeing some of the protests against police brutality also give way to violence. I mean, obviously, the proximate cause of that is police brutality. But I also think part of it is that, you know, you're starting to see left wing people show up to these protests with guns, which I think is a direct response to the fact that so many right wing people are showing up to these protests with guns. Ross, what's your reaction to that? I mean, so I I mean, I've thought all along that Trump bears responsibility for the general mood in American politics. I think that, you know, under a different president, you would have less violence in the streets. I think Trump's habit of sort of winking at white nationalist supporters in various ways probably does have some emboldening effect. I'm not sure it's really the only place I'd lay the stress, though, right now, since we're living through a wave of riots that's probably the most serious in this country and since L.A., certainly in the early 1990s. And as Michelle says, the proximate cause of the riots is responses to police brutality. But I think it's pretty clear that a mostly white sort of anarchist fringe has fastened onto the protests and used them as a pretext for sort of maintaining a simmering level of aggressive property crime and destruction in a few American cities over the last few months. And it's a problem independent of Trump that those cities, Portland, Oregon being the main example, haven't figured out a way to get the violent side of those protests under control. And I think that it's totally reasonable to have a conversation about this that isn't just about Trump and is about, you know, what is the response if you're the mayor of a liberal city right now and your business districts are getting burned? You know, what is your response if you're the mayor of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and your business districts are getting burned? What's what's the response if, you know, immigrant-owned small businesses are getting torched? And that can't just be a conversation about how Trump is bad. I do think Trump is bad. There's some other stuff going on here that's mostly a- that's mostly action happening on on the left, I would say. Can I just interject? Because I actually, I mean, I agree with Ross to a certain extent that these questions about how Democratic mayors should be handling violent unrest is not just kind of a rehash of the way that Trump, um, you know, has kind of unleashed evil spirits in the United States. But I don't think you can totally separate all of this and say we're just living through a wave of urban riots and not violent white supremacy or not kind of right wing incitement for a second civil war. When if you look at the fact that even some of the most shocking acts of violence to come out of the wave of urban unrest that's followed George Floyd's killing has been by the far right. It's really, really telling that when Mike Pence needed an example of a really shocking killing that happened at one of these riots, he spoke about the murder of a federal officer named Dave Patrick Underwood in Oakland. And he made it seem as if this was an outgrowth of the Black Lives Matter protests. He didn't mention that the person charged in this killing was part of the Boogaloo Boys, which is this bizarre, extremely online sort of militia movement that wants to spark a second civil war. 
So I agree that there's a conversation that's kind of separate from the white nationalist conversation, but I don't think you can take right-wing incitement provocateurs out of the violence that's happening all over this country right now. Ross, in terms of how Trump does or doesn't fit into all of this, let me ask the question in a different way. If we had these police shootings under a different president, do you think we would see the aftermath playing out the way it is now? Not exactly. I mean, I think the reason the aftermath has played out the way it has is the pandemic and the lockdowns and sort of the suspension of ordinary American life. I think that if you'd had the shootings and the protests in a situation where more people were at work and at school and cities were more normalized, you would have had some protests, maybe some sort of days and nights of riots in a few places, but you wouldn't have had both the sort of national movement aspect of it and the kind of sustained protest come violence stuff that you've had in in a few places. You know, and obviously Trump plays a role in how America responded to the pandemic and so on. But I think the weird suspension of normal life has played a bigger role in creating the overall culture here than necessarily Trump himself. What also might have played out differently is you might have different responses from blue state governors and liberal mayors to the situation because they wouldn't be sort of afraid of being seen as siding with Trump. I think there's a certain kind of political pressure that having Trump as president brings to bear on sort of liberals in government confronting rallies and protests where doing anything that seems to feed into Trump's narrative is something you can't do. So you think they're being less, for lack of a better adjective, stern with what's going on in their cities because they want to distinguish themselves from Trump and sort of defy him? Yeah, I think there's probably more hesitancy about whether it's calling in the National Guard, which obviously has been done in a lot of places, or instituting curfews, or just being seen as condemning the violent fringe of the protest too harshly. I mean, we had that whole phase of the Chaz zone, right? The sort of, you know, separatist enclave in Seattle where Trump was raging about it. So the mayor, the mayor of Seattle, because Trump is ranting, feels compelled to go on Twitter and talk about how peaceful this all is and how it's like, you know, we're just hanging out and having another summer of love here in Seattle. And then eventually, you know, lo and behold, some people get killed and the the Chaz zone has to shut down. And then in the aftermath, you get reporting, including in our newspaper that says, actually, this was kind of a hellscape if you, <laughs> if you owned a business in this area. Right. And I think that that kind of thing would have played out very differently under both a Democratic president and a non-ranting Republican president. So that's, I think, a small case study. But I think you have similar case studies around the country. It would be easier for liberal mayors and governors to take both tougher measures and use tougher rhetoric if they weren't afraid of being seen to give aid and comfort to Trump's anti-BLM, anti-Antifa narrative. I should make sure our listeners are aware we're recording this on Tuesday morning. And I think that's important because later today, after we finish recording, Donald Trump is going to be in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was asked, I think, by the governor and by others not to come, but that is not something that is ever going to deter our president. Michelle, at this point in time, with the election two months away, does Trump want this violence? Absolutely, he wants it. There was a quote from Kellyanne Conway last week that Biden has repeated a bunch of times for obvious reasons because it was extremely telling and revealing. She said on Fox, 
The more chaos and anarchy and vandalism and violence reigns, the better it is for the very clear choice on who's best on public safety and law and order. You don't invite this ridiculous gun-waving St. Louis couple to speak at the RNC and say that protesters are going to invade the suburbs if you don't think that this wave of violence is good for you. And I think that that is still a very open question, right? There's been a few hints that some of this might be working in Trump's favor, but after the freak out that showed the polls tightening after the Republican convention, they're now back about to where they were. There's a kind of a chicken and an egg question about whether this works, right? Because, I mean, it has been sort of insane to watch this 17-year-old kid, a Blue Lives Matter obsessive, someone who, according to BuzzFeed, was at a Trump rally in January, you know, takes his gun, drives to a protest, kills two people, is charged with murder. And in the next couple of days, the media narrative is, is Kenosha terrible for Biden? How are the Democrats going to deal with this, right? And it's sort of the soft bigotry of no expectations for Republicans, right? Like nobody even expects Trump to gesture towards the middle. Nobody expects Trump to try to calm things down, whereas people do have these expectations of the Democrats. And so although I think it's unclear whether kind of sparking a second civil war in the United States is going to be a net positive for the incumbent president, I think that Trump thinks it is. And I think that's what he's trying to do. Do you agree with that, Ross? Or how, how, what do you think the political fallout of this is going to be? I mean, I, I think there is a sort of soft bigotry of no expectations around Trump in that we know what we get from Trump. We know that he's not capable of making certain politically obvious moves that a normal president would make in these circumstances. And of course, it would benefit Trump politically if he were more likely to condemn people to his right. We just are aware at this point that that's not something he's going to do. And so the focus is on the sort of more unpredictable question of, you know, how does Joe Biden handle any of this? Kenosha became a subject of media debate, one, because it was, you know, a really severe wave of vandalism and arson that happened in a swing state in a region that Trump has to win and that he won to everyone's surprise last time, right? So it's not just the riots, it's the location of the riots and so on. It happened at a moment when you could see public opinions seeming to turn a bit in general surveys about protests and Black Lives Matter. And there was this initial surge of public support for the protests. And as time has gone on and the Portland stuff has continued and so on, that support has diminished somewhat. So there was sort of an intersection of another night of, of severe riots with that turn in public opinion. And then Rittenhouse himself is, you know, as far as we can tell, not a white supremacist, not a boogaloo boy, just an idiot, basically, who at 17 decided to go and protect car dealerships from rioters and ended up shooting people in a context that was not him like wading into a crowd firing. It was him, you know, basically getting his ass kicked as far as anyone could tell. Okay, but nonetheless, what do you make, Ross, about the fact that the right has turned Kyle Rittenhouse into a hero. Tucker Carlson has been <laughs> raving positively about him on air. Ann Coulter said she wants Kyle Rittenhouse as her president. 
I guess, thereby admitting that Donald Trump isn't doing such a great job. Mm-hmm. Looking for the silver lining well, in that and, comment. Well, Ann Coulter, Ann Coulter has has been arguing that Trump is doing a terrible job for a long she time. Wants wall. And if she you, wants and her wall. She wants her wall. She wants her wall. And if you watch Tucker Carlson closely, the fact that he thinks Trump is a failure is a pretty strong subtext of his show, Night to Night. Okay. Well, let's go back to Kyle. Uh, what do you make, Ross, about the fact that elements of the right and Ann Coulter and, and Tucker Trump. Carlson are there? Yeah. And Trump himself are lionizing this 17-year-old who went with a gun into an inflammatory situation. Because the right thinks that, you know, that that the people in charge of American cities have essentially retreated and abdicated their responsibility to protect people's businesses from rioters. And so people are, as happened, you know, with Bernie Getz famously in the 1980s, people um, are, yeah, are, are celebrating this kid who, again, as far as I can tell, was an idiot who is culpable for people's death, whether he's guilty of murder or not, but they're celebrating him for going and trying to effectively defend the things that the police weren't defending. That's but that, what's cel- that celebration is sick, no? It, well, it's dangerous, right? Because it's going, it, it sends a message to I mean, other I, I don't, I don't dumps. agree. Again, I think what Kyle Rittenhouse did was moronic at best, and people are dead because he, at best, was a moron, and I'm not celebrating it. I think that when you have an abdication of um, sort of civil authority to protect people's property and sometimes lives, then you're going to get a sort of mood that's sympathetic to, you know, to vigilantism. Yeah, I, I don't think that's remotely surprising. No, no, but th- well, that's not a, granted, Ross, that's not a celebration. That sounds a little bit to me like it's at least in the zip code of a justification. I mean, I think that if Kyle Rittenhouse had not been a 17-year-old teenager from another state, but had been a small business owner, um, you know, who was sort of armed when people came into their business and started setting it on fire, then it would have been justified. Right, but that's yeah. if, if it had been a totally different situation, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly, it, it, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes, but but I'm but I'm saying that there are. Mo- I'm saying that that the that there's a reason that in situations where people are going around burning businesses, that people get sympathetic to vigilantism. And it's dumb to be sympathetic to the kind of vigilantism that Kyle Rittenhouse embodied. But just saying, like, we can't, you know, it's sick to celebrate vigilantism in a climate of people's businesses being torched, then it's, you know, it's, I mean, people's businesses getting torched is sick, right? Like, some of the people doing things in these riots, not just the people you know, sort of shooting cops and things like that. But people torching somebody's livelihood, that's sick too, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, to me, it sounds like I could make the same argument, but I won't that say like in in a climate where police are shooting people and their government is not protecting them, then it makes sense that people will riot as, you know, what is the Martin Luther King line, right? Like a riot is the voice of the unheard. Um, I could I could construct a similar justification for rioting and looting, but I won't do it. And it sounds like to me, that's what you're doing. Basically, you know, kind of desperate times call for desperate measures. Why don't we achieve consensus here and say that um, I will say that crossing state lines with a gun to try and interject yourself into a gravely chaotic situation Whatever mitigating circumstances there are, that is both a stupid and a wicked thing to do. It's also wicked to burn somebody's business, right? 
Oh, yes, of course. Right. I, of think course it, yes. I think it's less wicked to burn someone's business than to kill someone. Okay. Is it less wicked to burn someone's business than to take your gun and try and stand guard around someone's business? What Kyle Rittenhouse intended to do, which was stand guard around someone's car dealership that might have been torched, is that more wicked than torching a car dealership? Less wicked? Wash? What's, what, what's, what I do think we it's think? more dangerous. But be, beyond these gradations, which to me are almost getting a little silly, is when you enter a situation like that, when you kind of walk into a room that is that is strewn with fuel with a match, bad things are going to happen. I mean, this is this is this is a volatile situation that your presence is going to do nothing but render more volatile. But the reason I dwelled but, on it, okay, Ross, but, is, but no, but look, but Frank, the conservative, the the thing that you're reacting to so strongly from conservatives here is rooted in the fact that you're describing the burning building in these sort of abstract terms, like it's a situation or, you know, there's things on fire. But in fact, people are setting those fires. People are torching those businesses. People are performing actions that are wrong. No, and right? it is, I mean, it's striking to me to listen, like, Ross, the, the, the degree of sort of emotion that I can tell you feel about this, where to me it is kind of bad. I feel immensely sorry for, you know, some of these small business owners who are not implicated in police violence, but it doesn't bring up the same emotion in me as seeing, you know, kind of police shoot unarmed civilians, you know, or police, right? Okay, but but police shooting unarmed civilians is obviously worse than burning a building. But we're having an argument about, you know, the idiot kid who tries to protect the car dealership, right? No, I, I'm, like I'm actually trying not to have an argument. Of, I'm trying not to have an argument about the kid. I'm trying to have an argument, or, or not even an argument, about the disparate reactions to what's going on. So I started, we went down this Kyle Rittenhouse uh, rabbit hole when I was asking why people on the right were, were celebrating him, were lionizing, were going well beyond justifying him, including the president, right? And earlier... Uh, you made a reference, Ross, to like, you know, uh, will Joe Biden uh, condemn certain actions on the left? Well, he has now, you know, in Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, yesterday, we're recording on Tuesday in Pittsburgh on Monday. He said, you know, these protests that get out of hand, the super- we have no- there's. What I'm focused on here is a real imbalance between what Joe Biden has said and will say and I think will continue to say and what Donald Trump won't say and isn't saying. Um, and it's not just Donald Trump. This is spread throughout the Republican Party. There was a fascinating interview on Sunday that Dana Bash of CNN did with Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin where she asked him if he would condemn the violence and he kept dancing around the words because he was clearly so worried that if he seemed to be condemning Kyle Rittenhouse and people who'd run to those burning stores that you're talking about, Ross, that he would somehow alienate his political constituency. I just think that's weird, dangerous, and unhealthy. My strong impression is that we have passed through a months-long period in which Democratic politicians and, um, you know, much of the mainstream press have wanted to insist that um, riots have not been as bad as riots have actually been because they are supportive of the cause of the protests that the riots have been attached to. That's that's my impression of sort of the story I, I think of the, the, I last, think the, riot, of the I, last few months. I think, I will grant you, Ross, the riots have been horrible. And I think sometimes there's, there's a, 
a big element of truth to what you're saying. And part of the part of the challenge right now for Joe Biden is I think a lot of people feel that they're not hearing a stern enough condemnation, that people are not admitting fully, that people gave protesters too much of a pass in terms of gathering uh, amid a pandemic and all of that. Well, I don't think that's that's a separate that's a separate. I issue. would sort of like some empirical understanding of how bad the riots have been versus how bad they've been sort of presented in the mainstream media. Because my impression, you know, being back here in New York City, is that there's this presentation of, you know, New York and other urban areas as this sort of crime-ridden hellscape. When in reality, you know, being back in New York, I wouldn't really know any of this was going on if I didn't see it on television on the internet, right? It's like, it's it's much more contained, at least here, than you would understand from reading, you know, mainstream newspapers, from watching cable news, from, from looking at it on the internet. I feel like I hear similar things from people in Portland who will say, you know, there's this idea that the city is on fire, but if you're out of a few block radius, you're barely even aware of it. And so it's just not clear to me that the scope of the riots has been underplayed. I think the scope of the riots have now been overplayed on the right. But I think that in our world of media, I think there was a period of a couple months when the scale of the damage in places like Minneapolis, especially, um, was underplayed. And also there was, you know, there was a spasm of looting in Chicago, right, a, a few weeks ago. And it was bad enough that they raised the bridges around Chicago to try and keep people from entering or leaving downtown in order to contain it. And it got like only coverage, as far as I can tell, from local media and and right wing media. And, you know, I cited the example of the Chaz, you know, the Chaz stuff in Seattle. I think what was everything that was wrong there got a lot more coverage after the fact, after it had been shut down. I guess all I'm saying is that I think I not to be all both sides here, but I think both sides are engaged in a kind of dangerous denial of parts of reality. So can I say something to that? I mean, I do think that left wing social media has had a really deleterious effect in that there is such stigma in seeming to call out sort of quote unquote bad protesters or make distinctions between good and bad protesters or sort of say common sense things about the political impact of unrest. You know, if you look at the firing of David Shore, which is something that, you know, maybe took up more oxygen in some of these debates than you would think the firing of a data analyst would usually receive. And it was because this data analyst for a progressive consulting firm who was fired from tweeting out a study by a Black Princeton professor about how riots in 1968 helped boost Richard Nixon's vote share, right? So I think this bleeds over a little bit, you know, and Democratic politicians, to the extent that they are to online might be hampered in sort of making what seem like common sense points to a lot of their constituents. But at the same time, I just I don't buy the idea that this stuff has not been widely covered. There's also an element of just journalists. You know, there are some of our very brave colleagues are traveling and are reporting, you know, and kind of risking their health to do it. But I think fewer people are doing it than would have done it in the past because of the pandemic, right? So there's a bit of a fog of war element to try to trying to figure out what is going on in Chaz. 
But, you know, the reason that we know how bad Chaz got is because of a big story in the New York Times. I think there's truth to that. I also, though, think that there has been a lot, precisely because Donald Trump keeps talking about Antifa, right? There has been a lot of pressure to say like, oh, Antifa, that just means people who are against fascism or Antifa, that doesn't really exist. And or it only exists in Tom Cotton's fervent imagination. It doesn't exist in the way that they talk about it as like, you know, you hear Laura Logan talking about how they're getting marching orders. And, you know, there's this rumor that Donald Trump spread of kind of black clad people on an airplane. I mean, I know these people. I've reported on these people enough to know that, yeah, you have kind of black block idiots in every single, you know, kind of metropolitan area in the country who are always trying to hijack protests and break shit. And that's something that precedes this current moment. There's overlap, but also distinction between the Black Bloc and Antifa. If we really want to go down that road, Um, you know, they're not entirely the same thing. Um, But there's been this attempt to basically turn, you know, kind of black block idiots into a well-organized terrorist threat that's ridiculous. I think it's wrong to see them as a well-organized terrorist threat. I think as someone who spent like, you know, much of the last three years sort of sort of in arguments with people on my right saying like, look, you know, Antifa, you know, this is not really a real thing. This is just a bunch of sort of, you know, idiots cosplaying. Like, I think we've established that those people are capable of doing substantial amounts of property damage um, and creating extremely dangerous environments in American cities when given the opportunity afforded by a pandemic, Donald Trump and mass protests. I would say that I underestimated the capacities of those idiots to sustain arson, damage, looting, and violence over a multi-month period. I think they've done a fairly impressive job in a lot of American cities of doing that. And that doesn't make them like the next, you know, the next ISIS. It doesn't make them an existential threat to the U.S. It doesn't make Donald Trump right in his, you know, fantasies about, about you know, black-clad Antifa ninjas on a plane. But it's still a kind of a big Kind of a big story, right? I think it's really unclear. Look, there's clearly these kids who've been dreaming of, I don't know, some sort of overthrow of the system for their whole lives and think that this is their big shot. And, you know, you kind of burn down enough coffee shops and the next thing you know, you have the end of capitalism. But it's very unclear (laughs) to me. Which is true. I mean, we should concede that that's true. There is a moment at which capitalism will end. But it's very unclear to me how much of this is... Antifa, how much of it is just sort of opportunists, you know, that sort of see looting going on and and want in on it, how much of it is other sorts of protesters. And then there is, I think that, you know, people on the left can overplay the role of right-wing provocateurs, but they're also part of the mix. If you want to talk about what happened in Minneapolis, you know, there was that black clad guy that really kicked off a lot of the arson and property damage. And you obviously can't blame him for all of it. But I think people can look back and say that's when it started. And we do now know, or at least he's been arrested and charged as being a white supremacist provocateur. So I I think that there is still a fair degree of confusion about you know, the kind of precise makeup and the precise breakdown of responsibility for what's happening right now. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And we're back. So the election is exactly two months away, and this issue clearly is going to linger throughout it. Michelle, you said earlier you think Trump wants this violence. Do you think at the end of the day it is going to help him on November 3rd, or I should say beforehand as well, since a lot of the voting this year is going to be mail-in? I mean, I should say that because I am so, you know, terrified of what's going to happen I fear in my darkest moments that it will. I don't see how you can experience the 2016 election and not think that white backlash is an incredibly powerful force in American politics. But I think that might be more my emotions talking than anything empirical. Um, There was one poll that showed some tightening. There's been some anecdotal reporting, including in our newspaper. But overall, the polls are really, really stable. In the 1968 analogy, Donald Trump is not Richard Nixon. He's LBJ, right? And that it's kind of hard to make the case that um, you need to reelect me president to stop the violence and chaos that has happened while I'm president. Ross, what do you what do you think the political fallout of this is going to be? How do you see this uh, coloring the presidential race? I mean, so I wrote a column weeks ago now where I tried to imagine how Trump could possibly come back. Um, this was when Biden was up by an average of 10, I think, in a lot of polls. And the scenario I spun out was basically that Trump needed COVID infections to drop dramatically, that he needed some of the, you know, early herd immunity theories to be true. And he probably needed the sort of violent fringe of the protests to become much more salient going into the election. A very mild version of that is happening. COVID infection rates have fallen, not as far as we would like them, but they have fallen and the violent fringe of the protests has gotten somewhat more salient. I think it's understandable that liberals would be worried. Um, and I think it's it's reasonable to worry in the sense that, you know, the incumbency point that Michelle makes is, I think, partially right. But there there is another reality, which um, actually David Shore, the data analyst Michelle mentioned in the first segment, who was fired um, famously for some of his tweeting about the politics of riots. He, he makes this argument about issue salience, right? That like, you know, voters for better or worse trust some part, one party more than the other on a particular issue. So if, and so if you raise the salience of that issue, who's got the 
the policies that technically poll best might be less important than just the fact that the issue is salient. So if you raise the issue salience of healthcare, the policy details may not matter as much as the fact that voters tend to trust Democrats more in healthcare. If that issue becomes more salient, it's good for the Democrats. And so if voters trust Republicans more on fighting crime and controlling urban riots, then even if Donald Trump doesn't have a 10-point plan to stop the urban riots, the more you raise the salience of that issue, the more potential advantages Republicans have. So that, that I think, is one way of arguing that what's happened in the last few weeks around these issues should make Democrats worried. That being said, you know, Trump is not, I mean, we were saying this in the first segment, but like Trump is running against Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a famously moderate Democrat with a tough on crime past who's, um, to put it charitably, a little bit past his prime as a political communicator, but still is perfectly capable of giving a speech where he says riots are bad, right? And Trump is not really capable of sustaining a kind of, you know, Richard Nixon type, uh, you know, sort of claiming the center kind of strategy. And to the extent that that's the sort of basic political reality of the race, I, I think... I think things would need to get a lot better with the coronavirus and a lot worse with the riots before full democratic panic would be justified. So you said Biden is perfectly capable of giving a speech decrying the violence. He gave that speech on Monday in Pittsburgh. Michelle, did you think he uh, accomplished what he needed to? Do you think that speech was on the mark? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a difficult thing for me to evaluate because there's sort of like what I want Biden to do because I think it'll help him win versus what I believe, right? So, you know, what I believe is that the real problem here is police violence, and that is what you have to tackle first. Um, Do I believe that it is good for Biden to decry these riots and to show, you know, sort of wavering suburbanites that he cares about urban unrest and that he's going to keep them safe, even though I believe that they are already 100% safe from this phenomenon. Like, yes, I do. So to me, the speech was great. And I thought it was, you know, it was great also because it opened up the obvious question, right? Like, yes, I condemn violence. I condemn left-wing extremism. Um, Your turn. Why won't you do it? If we just had a whole news cycle about is this bad for Biden? Why won't Biden condemn the riots? Will he condemn them strongly enough? Um, you know, it's frustrating that it seems unlikely that we're going to have a we're not going to have a similar news cycle about Trump again because nobody expects anything of him. Except that the news cycle is always about how Trump is bad. Why won't Biden do this thing that he needs to do to make sure this bad man is beaten? Isn't that I mean, that's that's the dynamic, uh, at least of like CNN, right? Like it's not you know, it's not the dynamic everywhere, but it's a pretty common media dynamic. And Trump does get, you know, when you know, after Charlottesville that Trump had some of his worst polling numbers, like when Trump is seen as not condemning, you know, right wing extremists, white supremacists and so on. It's it is it shows up in the polls Um, and the Trump campaign. Other people have made this point, maybe Josh Barrow or somebody. But like, you know, they keep setting up really easy tests for Joe (laughs) Biden to pass. They're like, oh, Joe Biden, you know, he he won't leave his basement. You know, he can't he can't speak. He just mumbles. And then he gives a, you know, a normal, pretty good convention speech. 
Um, and it's like, okay, pass, you know, pass that, that test. And then they're like, well, Joe Biden won't condemn the riots. And so Joe Biden gives a speech condemning the riots. And now the bar will be Joe Biden won't specifically condemn Antifa. And as you can tell from the first segment, I think Joe Biden should specifically condemn Antifa. I think he could go further in his specific, in his specific sort of hip, hip, um, attacks to the left. Um, but I think if that seems like politically necessary, he obviously will do that. He did something else really smart, I think, in his remarks on Monday. And, and I think he said it several times. It was simple, but he certainly said it once loud and clear. And like I said, I think multiple times where he kind of said to voters, you know me, you know me. And it was that was bigger than just about the violence and whether he condemns the violence. Obviously, whether whether they're trying to pin him into a corner um, by being not sufficiently uh, condemning of the violence, whether they're trying to do it in other ways, they're saying that the Trump, Trump and his surrogates and his enablers, they're all saying that Joe Biden is a hostage of the left or will be a hostage of the left. And I just think it's very effective when he speaks plainly and simply and trades on what is his greatest strength, which is that he has been around a long time and he is not scary to middle America. And I just, it really, really, uh, I thought was was smart. And it really kind of rang out when he said, I believe multiple times in his remarks to voters, you know me. Well, and he said, right, do I look like a radical socialist to you? Like, come on. Yeah, I think that's an effective line. I mean, I don't want to like, I, I think there was a little bit of overpraising the Biden speech, maybe from journalists who were panicked by a few of those post-convention polls. And Biden has lost a step. Right. Like that's just not really disputable. He's not as vigorous a politician as he was eight or 10 years ago. And that's that's a weakness. And, you know, he sort of wanders verbally more than than he used to. He's not like he's not a dynamic presidential candidate at all. But that's probably okay for the kind of race he's trying to win. It may actually be to his advantage, given how exhausting Donald Trump is to most Americans. I don't know. I worry about it a lot. The Democrats haven't won with a candidate over 55 in a really long time. You know, LBJ seems like an ancient person, but he was, I think, 55 when he became president. You know, we don't have a great record of in either party electing kind of old Senate war horses. And I don't know. It definitely scares me. Right. I mean, I constantly, it's why I didn't want him to be the, it's why I didn't want wait him to second, be the nominee, though, you, even though I now think he has some but wait strength. A second, Michelle, you wanted Elizabeth Warren and she's 71 now. So, but she's a vigorous, she's a vigorous Elizabeth. 71, Frank. And she, I mean, she is, she's more, she's more vigorous. Okay, I will than, admit she's a much more vigorous 71 than Joe is a 77. But, but, but my, I mean, I mean, she breaks that paradigm of Democrats winning with the youngest candidate. I'm just, I'm just, yeah, but, you know, 71 in woman years. Is, fair enough. Fair enough. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, but I think that is what Michelle is saying is that the danger for Biden, right, is that he doesn't turn out young voters at quite the rates that that a more, you know, either a more dynamic or a more left wing candidate would have. And that his sort of, you know, his his age and wobbliness becomes a problem in the event that like if there are sustained rioting and the politics of law and order just stay incredibly salient in states like Wisconsin and Minnesota, then the Democratic candidate needs to like he needs to project some toughness, right? Some sense that like if it's necessary to sort of, you know, bang heads again, not not of not of of criminals, but of mayors, right? Of like sort of going after his own governors or his own mayors and so on, that he can do that. And a little more 1980s Biden 
would probably be better for this campaign. Is one of the dangers for Biden us? And by that, I mean the media. And and what I'm talking about is I kind of notice and this most recent thing with urban or, you know, with the violence and the protests is a good example. You know, Donald Trump spotlights an issue, takes some position on it, says something provocative, and the media immediately begins writing, how is Joe Biden going to respond? Um, and I see a lot of people making the making the correct comment that, that Biden isn't controlling or seizing the narrative, but I'm not sure we allow him to. I feel like for all of our hand-wringing and, 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 and soul-searching and self-examination about the way we cover Trump, I still think we let him define the event of a given 24, 72-hour news cycle, and then it becomes how will Joe Biden respond? And I'm not sure how Biden breaks out of that if, in fact, it's a pattern that we've established. Michelle, am I seeing... Are you seeing this too? Or? But isn't this- I think that's right. I mean, and again, I think there's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing, like I said before, where it's hard to say, is the media responding to a genuine shift in the electorate or the polling, or is the media creating a narrative because it's sort of that time in the race when, you know, you need a new story besides, you know, Biden is inevitable and Trump is self-destructing. But I definitely do think that, you know, again, the media, I think it both sort of follows Trump's lead on defining the issues and then, you know, lets him off the hook so that there's not a you don't see a lot of reporting. And I do think that Ross is right in that, you know, because I think a lot of journalists do fear for the republic. So they're not sort of worried about what Trump is doing wrong. There's not a sense of like, what does Trump have to do to right the ship? The piece Jamel wrote is the kind of piece that you see about Biden all the time and you basically never see about Trump. You 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 never see people sort of suggesting that Trump might be losing the center. You know, you kind of never see people dwelling on Trump's refusal to disavow the far right, um, you know. And so I do think that there is a little bit of kind of chronic both sidesing um, that I think was a big, big problem for Hillary Clinton. I think that the media vastly inflated the salience of email server management as an issue. And kind of, I think voters took a cue from that, that this is a really big deal. And I think that they could be doing the same thing over again. Yeah, well, but it's different, right? Like Biden is not there. There's a lot of coverage of like, why is Biden doing enough to win? You know, can you know, is Biden going to blow it and so on? There's very little critical scrutiny of Biden's like actual record. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the, we're, we're not getting a range of stories that are like, you know, that that of the stories that liberals feared we'd get that are like, well, what about the Biden family's, you know, overseas business dealings? I mean, there was a bunch of stories about Biden not being left enough during the primary campaign. But there's there's, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there's very little, let's say, of the media echoing the Trump campaign's narrative about Biden, right? The Trump campaign's narrative about Biden is that he is an embodiment of a failed American establishment that outsourced American jobs overseas and led us into disastrous wars in the Middle East. Um, and, and that's kind of true, <laughs> right? Like, but nobody in the media is echoing that line. 
Um, nobody in the media is like re-excavating Biden's Iraq war vote or things like that in the way that the media did, I think, play into Trump's crooked Hillary narrative in 2016. I, I think all of the sort of the Biden stuff is about right now, at least we've still got a little ways to go, is just about is he is he doing enough? And they aren't trying to like grab the narrative with huge policy speeches and, you know, big ideas. I mean, I, I think I don't know if you can completely blame the media for what is, in fact, choices that the Biden campaign is making, which is to run a it's a very cautious sort of front porch style campaign. I mean, Biden's convention speech was I mean, it was actually really distinctive. It was really short. It was had almost no policy in it. It was just a sort of personal appeal. Like, I'm Joe Biden. You know who I am. I'm a good guy. Donald Trump's terrible. He's messed up the coronavirus. Vote for me. Like, that's the Biden strategy. And it is vulnerable, but it's vulnerable to external events like the coronavirus diminishing and riots getting worse. No, but that, that's an excellent point. It's hard to, it's impossible to seize the narrative if, in fact, you're protecting a lead. And that has been the Biden strategy. It factors into why Kamala Harris was the, uh, was the vice presidential choice. I think there has been a, an assumption that he's ahead, uh, that, you know, if you just kind of extrapolate forward far enough, he ends up ahead, he ends up winning, and let's not do anything wrong. Let's not take any big risks. Let's protect our lead. I think that's a, a big part of the dynamic. And I think you're and I think that's what that's what you're referring to, Ross, right? Yeah, and, and he does well, and the other little thing is that because there's an assumption that Trump can win the electoral college, even if he loses the popular vote by two or three points, there's also a weird uncertainty in the media narrative about like how much is Biden really winning by, right? Like if he's up by eight points, that's huge by modern presidential campaign standards. On the other hand, it's only a five point lead <laughs> from like an electoral college point of view. So there's there's a certain kind of whipsawing and uncertainty in the media narrative there too, I think. And the media is once again, despite its promises every four years not to do so, covering the horse race more than anything else. Here we are talking about polling margins and all of that. I'm raising my hand and saying guilty as charged, you know? No, but I don't I don't think that I don't think there's anything to be guilty of. Right. It's like, you know, I mean, we're talking about is there going to be a recognizable American republic three months from now? The question of kind of who's ahead and who's behind in that existential contest is a big one and is actually way more important than anything in Biden's policy platform. Without necessarily agreeing with that argument, <laughs> I will say that it's also true that Trump is not rolling out policy ideas <laughs> regularly either. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing but if, with Biden running a cautious, low policy campaign and Trump running a scattershot, demagogic, low policy campaign. I mean, in 2016, Trump had more policy. He had an actual sort of critique of the neoliberal establishment that was really important to his closing argument in 2016. And that sort of resurfaced in the Republican convention, but it's not really there. Trump's not really running on policy. So what is what else does the media have to write about except the except the horse race. Well, this is a great place to end because it's not often that all three of us are in perfect alignment and on <laughs> and on the fact <laughs> that this is not a policy election, I think we have total total agreement, right? Yes, absolutely. And I guess agreement is also a good place to end your wonderful stint as part of our show here, Frank. Um, and we will miss you terribly. But since this is your final argument episode, we of course have to turn to you for the recommendation. 
So what will you give us as a parting gift as you say goodbye? Well, since it's my last recommendation ever, at least on the show, I hope I have <laughs> recommendations you're, in you're my gonna life. You're going to do your own podcast that's just <laughs> recommendations. I have, over the last five years, become this kind of strange and stubborn evangelist for this short story that is one of my favorite short stories ever called In the Cemetery Where Al Jolson is Buried. Has either of you ever read it? No. No. It's by the famed, accomplished, uh, terrific short story writer Amy Hempel. Its title does not prepare you for what it's about. It's basically about a woman watching a friend die, and yet it manages to be jovial to the point of jocular until the final paragraphs. And it is the story that just does this amazing thing where you're kind of rolling along with it. You're feeling little pinpricks of grief and sorrow. And then in the last couple of sentences, it just tears your heart straight out of your chest. Now you're thinking, why am I recommending this? I'm one of those people who, when I'm feeling a little blue, I like to like take the feeling all the way down until it comes back over the top. You know, I I get a glass of wine, I listen to Billie Holiday, and I read In the Cemetery Where Al Jolson is Buried by Amy Hempel. If you Google it, you will find the entire story online and you can you can read it without buying anything. I When I read it that way, I uh, did not own any Amy Hempel book. I felt like I owed her for the intense pleasure. And so my recommendation is read the story online. And if you're as taken with it as I am, reward Amy Hempel and do the right thing by buying a copy of the collected stories of Amy Hempel, in which there are many, many other gems. But the peak, the Everest, is in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried. I'm also a wallower, so I will do that. You'll, you'll love this. <laughs> and Frank, I guess bringing us all the way down to the bottom so we can come back up is a good metaphor or synecdoche or, you know, some, some literary form for <laughs> how, you're, how you're departing our show. So, or I was I thought uh, you were going to say for the Trump years, you know, he's bringing <laughs> well, us all the way to the bottom yeah, so we can come then. back up the top. Yeah. We'll, we'll save the that. The worse, the better. Uh, we'll save that for December. Um, but Frank, thank you again for being with us over these totally insane months. Um, and we will miss you terribly. Yes. Thank you, Frank. Thank you guys. I'll miss you and I'll miss the listeners for the argument. I thank them for bearing with me. And may the road always rise to meet your feet and, you know, the rest of an Irish proverb. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the road, Ross. I'm on the road. Now, just one more thing before we go this week. We're going to start releasing this podcast on Fridays rather than on Thursdays in an effort to catch more of the week's news as the election heats up. So starting next week, we'll be talking to you and arguing with each other on Fridays instead. And with that, that's our show this week. Thank you for listening. The team includes Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Darba, Kristen Lynn, Isaac Jones, and Paula Schumann. Special thanks to Kathy Too. The argument will be back in your feed next Friday. Wait, what are Peaches and Herbs? Oh, oh Ross. Ross. Peaches and Herbs, it's, it's an R&B duo that did the song oh. Reunited, which is like a prom oh, staple. man. <laughs> you oh, obviously man. never went. You didn't I, go to your prom, I, did, I, did you? I didn't. I, we're really going to excavate some pretty, some pretty dark territory here <laughs> if we go down that road. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.